Okay, so on this episode, we have a lot more guests than we usually have. It'll be a full conversation, and I'm really excited to do it because this is just me giving some advice out. Should be fun. Let's get the logistics out of the way. I'm Dr. J.P. Gerald. Uh, we talk about the race, ju- justice for the racially, linguistically, and, and neurologically minoritized on this podcast. So everything's going to be about one or several of those topics. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this. Like, I go on YouTube sometimes, and, you know, when I'm really bored, and I'm not going to be bored for a while because I got two books that I'm writing coming up, and I got interviews to do, and I'm, I'm really excited to have projects. But when I'm truly bored, and there's some nights when I'm just sitting around, you know, I end up drifting into, like, true crime territory, and I think true crime is really exploitative, so I, you know, move away from it. If it's public knowledge, I feel like it's a little bit less exploitative when it's, like, just like people are saying what's in the it's already written down publicly. Well, then, you know, that's what happened. But, like, you know, there are people who are trying to do that, and they get, like, six views on their, like, YouTube videos. I have a friend. I don't know if he's a friend. I have a guy I know who was my really good friend in college, and he, he used to try to make YouTube videos, and he was he would I would try to help him with his videos, and he was very upset that nobody would watch. And I understand that because he was in a different position than I'm in. Now, again, it helps that I'm in a position where I'm not super concerned about the, the listens here. Um, I know on a previous episode I said, please tell your friends about it, but ultimately, I have about a, cons- I have a consistent audience. It's a very small audience, but like if you listen to this, you are one of 250 or so people who listen to me regularly. And um, I appreciate your presence. And I try to bring things that are interesting. I think I know sometimes I worry that you won't be interested in the ones where I talk about myself. But like, if you listen to me every time, you might be encouraging of that. So I appreciate the last two episodes where I was by myself and you still listened. So anyway, today I'm talking to uh, three people who I met because uh, one of them emailed me. Uh, be, like this is there's a long chain, but like there's someone I know who's also been on this podcast, God, Dr. Gabriella Licata, and uh, she lives in California. She is a, a, a uh, she's a postdoc, um, but she teaches or advises. And this person who I'm going to mention said, you know, I gave a presentation at a conference with my colleagues and people were really racist. Are there people talking about this in language education? And Gabriella Licata held up my book, which she had handy. And like, I don't make very much money from my language work. Like this, the, this podcast, I will not stop you from donating to my page, to, to my Patreon um, I started the Patreon in 2020 when I was worried I was really going to lose my job. There was a pretty good chance I would lose my job. I kept my job, but I wasn't sure. Um, but uh, I do this because I think it's valuable. I enjoy it, sure. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. But uh, I think it's valuable, and like that's the value, right? Like Someone like Dr. Licata can hold up my book for someone who's been through this situation, and I hope that over time people can benefit from the work that I've tried to do in language because I'm not a language teacher anymore. You all know this. I, you know, my book, my first book at least, and I'm going to write another one, but that one's more about 
the the world than it is about my experience. You know, it was kind of a mic drop. It was kind of like I said what I need to say about the field, you know? And um, I hope that my book can be something where, and, and my presence can be something where people like this can benefit from it. Because again, I don't teach language right now. I do sometimes teach teachers. I'm an adjunct and I, you know, that's not my main job. It's a separate job. It's a, something I do for fun. Extra money, sure, but not a lot of money. You know how adjuncting is. Um, and I teach pe- teachers about, you know, language and, uh, language education and special education. I hate that name, but that's what it is. Um, but I'm not teaching them the language part. Like, I'm not teaching people English. I'm teaching teachers about teaching people who are teaching English, which is related, but it's not the, quite the same thing. And, and uh, what I find interesting about that is that you really do get a lot of people who, like, the people coming into this field, at least in New York, right, where I'm teaching, or in the New York area, genuinely care. They have not necessarily been taught correctly, neither was I. Um, So I hope to correct that or or shape that or whatever. Um, And these people who are going to be on the podcast today, the three of them, you know, there's a lot of people in the language field who want to do right by people. So... That's all. Anyway, listen to the episode. I hope you find it interesting. Um, And I hope that anyone listening to this who wants to present at a conference, you can always reach out to me. Um, You could just talk to me or you could be on this podcast about it. And otherwise, you know, I hope that the field listens to what I try to put out, whether it's the 250 of you or the conference presentations or the books I write or anything. Because even if you don't do exactly what I said, which is just my ideas... It's just necessary that we do something different from what we're doing right now. All right. Okay, folks. So, uh, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I don't know why I say welcome back. I already recorded an introduction. So, if you were listening to this, you've been listening to me talk for a few minutes already. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm here with three people who are going to introduce themselves in a second. And, um, you know, on this podcast, I've talked a few times about pushback i've gotten on the work that i'm doing and whether it's in person or online or whatever and uh, the three of them recently experienced something similar to what i went through and you know i'm not going to just sit here and lecture them and give them advice right i already did that (laughs) but (laughs) i also wanted to to have this conversation so that people can understand i mean in some ways it's validating for me because i i always get self-conscious to see if people actually believe that some of the things I say about this stuff. If you listen to the podcast, you believe it, but you know, other people, you know, who knows what people hear. Uh, but also to think through, you know, different strategies for people's better understanding. So anyway, uh, whichever one of you would like to go first, um, explain just sort of who you are and sort of the work you're trying to do. And then we'll get into the discussion. Okay, I'll go first. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting us here, Dr. Gerald. Um, I'm Carla Torres. I am a PhD student at UC Riverside in the Hispanic Studies Department. I have my master's in TESOL, and my research really is rooted in racial linguistic ideologies, justice-centered pedagogies, and my work really just focuses on decolonization, calling out um, practices that promote white supremacist ideologies. And yeah, so in my PhD program, I am in, I specifically look at linguistics, so Spanish linguistics, 
and second language acquisition and how uh, and promoting the use of different varieties of English as well as Spanish because it's very important to understand the different varieties as well as cultures of marginalized and oppressed communities. So that's really the work that I focus on the most in my program. Um, hi everyone. Um, I don't know why I'm waving. I know you guys. Um, uh, my name is Alyssa. Um, I'm a second year uh, grad student at California State University, Dominguez Hills, in the MA TESOL program. Um, I just started doing research with this project that we are currently working on and trying to get feedback on with my colleagues. Um, and I focus more on the TESOL side of the uh, presentation, so looking over our curriculum and ways that we we can implement um, promoting uh, different varieties of English that are commonly spoken in Los Angeles specifically um, to a class, uh, to an ESL class. Hi, everybody. My name is uh, Jackie Granados. Um, I'm a recent uh, Cal State Dominguez uh, Hills uh, graduate graduation student from I graduated last this past year uh, in English education uh, with the TESOL. Um, and I'm a little bit more interested in the education route. So how education can be approached to, you know, approachable for every student, uh, particularly people of color, uh, people who of, uh, you know, first generation students, uh, people who just, uh, are not normally welcome in those spaces in, um, community colleges or just college higher education in general. Um, and that's something that I think all of our, you know, our group, um, Alyssa and Carla found something in common is that we found something very interesting about how, uh, uh, linguistics and education cross all the time and that is one of my interests is education um, and linguistics is also a huge part of that because ESL is something that is integrated at least from where we're from um, in Los Angeles particularly um, is such a huge um, part of our lives it's always been um, with us growing up so uh, hopefully we can get to talking about that today. All right. Thanks. So it's interesting that you all come from, well, I guess two sides of the language field. One of the things, and let me focus here before I go off into my little ADHD hole here, but um, one of the things I find frustrating about, you know, academia, which is why I'm not primarily an academic, honestly, is that, you know, people specialize in this and that, fine. But then a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking cross-discipline or people from other disciplines, you know? And I do understand why I shouldn't necessarily have any expertise on, like, biology or something. But, like, I think I can have an opinion on linguistics, even though my training is in ed language education, right? I'm not mm -hmm. going to pretend to assert some findings because I don't have any, but, like, I can absorb the information and so forth. And I think that Academic training, unfortunately, puts us in these little silos when we really need to be, I'm not saying we don't have our specialties and our particular interests, but I think we really need to do what you all are doing, which is working not even across, like that still implies that it's different. It's different, but like that you're on opposite sides of a river or something. 
but like, you know, with people from different parts of the field, because the only reason I've been able to do what I've been able to do, all these books and stuff is because I started talking to people from other, that weren't doing exactly what I was doing. Right. Because ultimately nobody should be doing exactly what you're doing because then you're doing the same thing as everybody else. Everyone's going to be somewhat different. So you should be collaborating with people who are doing something related, but that Mm -hmm. builds with. So, you know, I think that that's good. And and it's a lesson for people that like, you know, don't feel limited to, because I was TESOL, right? In my master's, that's it. Um, But my, my doctorate is not language. I ended up writing about language, honestly, almost by default, um, Mm -hmm. just because I, I knew something about it. And, uh, I frankly had a lot of connections in language and I wanted to get something published and it was the language people who would listen to me. So that's what that's. And it's just funny because I've still been out of the language classroom for a while, although I do teach language teachers like, so now, now I'm on that side of it, but like, I don't know. In some ways it's encouraging because there are a lot of people trying to do what we're trying to do. Right. But in some ways, it's discouraging because, like, it just takes so long to change a field. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think for us, it was, like, very natural to just go to that, like, thought process. When we came up with, um, you know, just even the project in the, in the classroom when it first started out, uh, that was, like, our natural, like, leaning. That's what we were leaning towards, basically, is to make it as inclusive as possible, like, to the individual. And we wanted to um, target mostly people who were uh, not considered, you know, people who are in ESL. When people think of that, it's, like, normally young children. Um, But I feel like a lot of folks don't consider uh, people who are no longer in the public school uh, system. It's more of just, uh, like, the adults, the, the, the ones who are are barely getting um, by in general uh, with the education that they got in the beginning. Um, We wanted to target those who were missed during that time. And we wanted to make it as accessible as possible. And I think that's what we all had in common, basically just considering um, all, all, I guess, like all, all ways that we can have, uh, different types of people and from all walks of life in this classroom that we thought of. Yeah, I would say for sure the stars really aligned with us. Like we were already friends prior to when we started this project, but what really brought us together was because we observed a lot of these issues that we're going to talk about on uh, through firsthand. We've lived through them and, you know, we observe them in the classrooms. And really, that's why we were able to naturally come together to create this curriculum. Because, you know, as women of color, Latinas, we, our positionality is very tough, especially in academia. And so when we got together, it was very easy to discuss a lot of the topics that we cover in our curriculum, because we observe it, we live through it on a daily, and it's very challenging. So it felt very natural and easy to even just come up with what we wanted to have our uh, our central objectives and goals for our curriculums because we have been discussing these 
prior to even when we before we even developed this curriculum. So yeah. Sorry, I could keep unmuting myself. Um so you've alluded to a project. I know what it is, but they don't know what it is. Uh and the presentation and like I know what it is, but they don't know what it is. So if you want to walk the people through what the sort of the project in a short version of what the project is and the create or and the presentation, which which I guess is the same thing. Um and sort of why we're talking, right? What happened here, you know? Um so whoever wants to sort of again concise okay uh walk the people through <laughs> these things so we our project was a curriculum development that we created and the the curriculum itself is rooted in decolonization decentering white supremacist ideologies promoting racial uh, linguistics and um, social justice standards into our curriculum. So really what we are doing is we are not only uh, teaching standard English, but we're incorporating the different varieties of English around L.A., like Black English, Chicanx English, and teaching the students about these varieties, the grammars of these varieties, as well as having conversations about the communities and why they are viewed as marginalized and oppressed. And I'm not sure if anyone wants to jump in and discuss what happened at the conference, but you guys can jump in if you'd like. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, when we, at first in the beginning, when um, when we first got there, we were like, oh, we won't really receive any, um, you know, like pushback. I think it'll be pretty normal, you know, like we're obviously – students still like we're not putting anything into practice yet um and we did make that clear in the beginning of the our presentation um and i think because of that uh i didn't expect the the pushback that we got um and i know that we did get some nods in <laughs> throughout the presentation um and I think in some uh, in some uh, the slides, I I did mention um, you know decentering and decolonizing this this structure, this ideology of um, these uh, white supremacist ideologies that we seem to implement in uh, the classroom of ESL. Uh, we seem to want to separate uh, languages rather than just integrate them. Um, and that is something that I did mention during my during my goals, at least. And then um, we got the Q&A and, you know, we expected something different about like, oh, how did you come up with this idea? Or like, um, you know, can you tell me what inspired you, what you thought of? Um, but it wasn't it pretty much wasn't like that. If anyone wants to mention one of the first questions that we got. I don't know, Carla, if you remember, Alyssa. <laughs> yeah, um, it was really there was a, there was claps and then there was like a long pause. I remember. Um, and then there were questions about the curriculum at first. So someone had asked, like, um, 
who would we, we would be teaching this to particularly. So I think uh, they were really like, so who is it for? Like immigrants, adults, like who would be taking this class? Um, and that person came off a little bit aggressive. So I think that's where things started to slowly go downhill. Um, and then it was like about an activity. And then there was a particular person who um, asked or I guess started off as like a comment, like we would be putting our students at a disadvantage um, if we were to teach them, you know, non-standardized English or um, these different varieties of English found particularly in L.A. Um, and then that's when other people started to chime in. It was first like nods and then another person kind of uh it sort of became like, I don't know, like, I don't know if allies were the correct word, but kind of just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say um, the reaction wasn't much of like, they weren't really asking questions. I think they were more making comments as questions because when we would take our time to think about our responses, um, someone else would jump in and then change the subject entirely. So we wouldn't even have time to think, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, uh, I did have, I do remember there was a a woman who um, asked, you know, the question of like, okay, so who exactly do you want teaching this? And at first, you know, we were kind of like, we did mention in the beginning, it is in our slide, like in our syllabus, in our goals. Um, and I did mention, uh, I was pretty clear and I did say, well, I do want someone that has a history, a background in or like an upbringing, similar upbringing to these students, because we are teaching them um, basically uh, different cultures and varieties of English. And a lot of the times that is something that you can find in connection to like each other's upbringings. Um, And that is what I said. And I think that's what kind of made things like snowball into a whole different conversation. and then we had another gentleman. He was a ESL teacher. And I he did ask Carla a question. If you want to talk about that, Carla. Yes. <laughs> um, basically, what the person had asked, oh, well, that was more of a comment saying we're putting our students at a disadvantage, like Ellis said, if we don't teach them standard English. And then they continued um uh teaching them double negatives isn't going to score them a job so very harshly they were coming at me and then after another person jumped in and was um talking about how teaching students these varieties is um our student they don't want our students basically sounding like they're rapping and using an appropriate language and so it just that's how it started to spiral it was just going out of control We also received another comment that ESL learners aren't going to understand what social justice is, right? Even though I had explained that the social justice standards uh, created by Learning for Justice was for K through 12. And so if a child, you know, in classrooms, children are having these conversations of social justice, how is it that an adult won't really understand it, right? But because we were receiving all of these comments at once, it was very hard to even process this thinking because there was so much going on. And I think at that point, I started to shut down a bit because I felt more hurt by the comments 
is because we weren't really anticipating those types of remarks from the, the attendees. I, I do remember, I, I think I did catch when you did shut down because it was when people were asking you questions and then you couldn't answer them because it was just so like, it was almost like you were kind of processing the comments they were saying first. And then I just was like, okay, let me just like, let me see if I can say something because it was almost like, I don't know, I just couldn't believe it either. Like the, the comment about, they they were so obsessed with the double negatives almost. Um, that's something they couldn't let go, even though we did also want to consider like, okay, well, yes, we, we do, we can say that that is something we will talk about, but also why is that the only thing that's bothering you? And then we get the comment about, it was a older woman. She, um, the one who mentioned like, uh, uh, people like, oh, well, if they're going to learn black English, then you're just going to have them think that, like, you're just going to have them um, believe that if they continue talking like that, um, their only profession is going to be being a rapper. And then it's almost like a sketch. It was she looks around and she just looks around in the class, like in the in the room that we're in. And then everybody else laughs. Mm-hmm. And we're just kind of like, what is going on right now? Like, I, I couldn't believe it that she said that. and then. The other people were okay with that. Um, there was nobody um, in that room that was, like, standing up to that comment, finding it odd. No person that it would be respected because, uh, obviously, if we said something because we're students, um, it wouldn't be considered, like, okay, well, yeah, that's, we shouldn't be saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, like, lots of types of ESL prof- professors probably uh teachers there's uh people who just work closely with students have all these experiences and um they didn't say anything um and that was just something that it just it just that stuck with us basically um yeah if anyone wants to jump in on anything else i might have missed Well, you know, I'm not sure why these things, I told you all the story when we talked the first time, but, and I've told this on the podcast many times, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but the first time these things happened to me, you know, I, uh, I just get that. It's sort of a visceral feeling, right? You just feel sort of feel like your stomach is dropping, you know? Um, because like, well, you're not going to win the argument. So you just sort of feel like there's nothing that you can do. Um, but then you get, you get the feeling of like, but if I'm not going to say anything, does that come off as weak? Like I'm endorsing what they're saying. But they kind of, I don't even know if they know this consciously, but they're sort of, they're conscious of the fact that they're sort of trapping you. Right? Because if you fight back against someone, especially if they're older like that, like, it doesn't always come off well unless you have a lot of support in the room. One of the things that's happened to me that's made things better for me is that since I've done all this stuff, there are people who come to my talks 
because they want to hear what I have to say. So when people say stuff like that, those people will jump in, right? So what has to happen is you got to have your people there, you know? Um, and I don't mean even mean plants, but like if those people are really engaged in the discussion, um, you know, it, it can help. Another thing, and I'm suggesting this to you, but to anyone listening, is that I do so sort of, like one of the things I was saying is like you put a lot of information into the slides is like when I do these talks, you know, I always make time for them to get into little circles and talk about stuff. And it sort of diffuses the people who are upset. They sometimes still upset, but if they're able to talk in a smaller group first, you know, they don't sit there and stew over what they're thinking about until you're done talking and then they just want to come at you. They still might, but they've had it, you know, you, you sort of gave them a timeout beforehand. Um, and if they're in the smaller groups and you have people there, then they'll understand that they're in the minority, right? That, that, that they're, you know, if they're just asking a question that the first question starts off that way, then people are going to feel emboldened to keep going, you know? So it just it just ends up being risky. I don't know who your advisors are. I know you talk to Gabby and stuff like that, but like um I didn't have any advice on this because I started doing this talking about racism and language education and I had people editing my writing, but there was nobody I asked before I went and did talk about it. And I was really nervous. I was really nervous. I liked so this is the first time, this is my idea, the first article I put out there, the Altruistic Shield article from like January 2020, right? But although this presentation was in November 2019, so nobody read the article yet because it hadn't been published yet. So I'm just t- like, no one knows what I'm going to say beyond the abstract. And I'm making things up. I mean, I don't mean I'm lying. I mean, it's a theory that I came up with. Um, and I don't have any data aside from observations because it's, it's just theory. You know, um, so my argument had to be, I don't want to say airtight, but really convincing. And um, whether I got lucky with an audience or I just did a good job, I don't know. But like, like I'm saying, like I had, like before it started, like I went to the bathroom and I was like sweating and I was like, I don't go back. <laughs> I don't feel, feel that way anymore. But like, you know, it's acid reflux, which I mean, that's partly because I'm a lot older than all of you, but I wasn't. As old then as I am now. It was, you know, four years ago. Um, but yeah. And it, um, you know, it just sort of got to the point where I go in, I try to build in what they're going to say into the talk. Right? Some of the frequently asked questions or the frequent complaints. I try to put them into the talk. So then there's not a lot that they can say. Because first of all, they don't they don't really have a lot to say. Right? They say the same three things over and over again. So I can put that into the talk and address it directly. And then I like I said to you the other day, I pause and like, does anybody have anything that doesn't make any sense? And they can't say it doesn't make sense. So then 
if they're raising their hand, it's because they want to argue. But then, you know, I've sort of robbed them of the ability to say that they, they don't understand. Then they're just saying they don't like it. And, you know, people are not as bold as they think they are. You just have to cut them off at the feet, I guess, um, before they get ideas. It's a shame, though, because we shouldn't have to do this. But on the other hand, I'm of two minds because part of me wants to just sort of build solidarity in groups, hope that that carries the day. But what of all the students who are being taught by these other teachers? Yeah. You know, they're being taught by those teachers now. So I could spend 10 years trying to build solidarity with groups, and I do do that, but I can't just do that, because if I do that, you know, if you're, if your son is in fifth grade now, and I'm over here like, well, in 12 years, well, <laughs> it didn't really do anything for him. Um, and I feel that way about a lot of academic stuff, because it takes so damn long to get published, and people... My friend who was on this podcast when her book came out, like the book came out this year and the data is from like 2015. And that's not even her fault. That's just the nature of these things. But I'm just like, so what happened to the people since then? <laughs> it's like when you watch a movie and if they, you know, like about a biopic and they just didn't put the text at the end, like it just ends and they're like, you figure it out. Yeah. Um <laughs> So anyway, that's how I think about that. It's unfortunate, but in a way, it's sort of a learning experience. And now I go, you know, I hope that the next time you do anything, I just sort of go in with my fists raised metaphorically. You know, the last talk I gave was, no, I did one in, in May, but the last solo talk I gave was last November and it was about my book and like I said to you all about this person who complained on the message boards about or the the feedback about how she this person was trying to make her feel bad for being white um and uh you know what I I don't always have a quick comment but my, I always, I just use it in my work afterwards. Like all these stories end up in my work, whether it's writing or the podcast. So what that means is that I always feel like you can say what you're going to say right now, but you will become a lesson to everybody who pays attention to me. And to me, that's a better revenge than some quick comment that I could make. Um, you're not going to get into it like a West Wing debate or some nonsense and just win. It's not going to work. They, they don't, they're not going to listen. If they wanted to listen, they wouldn't have said anything. Um, I do wish conferences would do a better job moderating these things. Um, this is not to say that there should be no critiques, but there's a difference between a substantive critique and nonsense. You know, and especially for emerging academics, whatever you want to call yourselves, uh, you know, we all classify ourselves differently. That's exactly who needs to be supported in these situations. Mm -hmm. And uh they sort of 
this sort of thing could very easily put, tell people to not be bold. I would hope that maybe you don't have as much spite as I do, but I would hope you use it as a as a, as a, as, a, as impetus to push forward, you know, because mm-hmm. after this happened to me, I, like I took a moment, I paused, and then I said, "All right, now that's what I'm, I'm going to do." This, you know, and like I said, I'm not even a language teacher anymore, so I just do this for fun. <laughs> yeah, I think um, that's basically what we did too. I. I I would I don't know but I did have this like I just had this like epiphany in a way where I would consider this conference and this presentation that we did as practice this wasn't to me this is like I think we have the perspectives of people when we practice in the beginning because it's almost as if they thought that we just did this uh, presentation without the approval of other professors which we did. Um, and I think that's part of why we were a little surprised, but then we also didn't consider like how vastly different um, people think about these things. And I think this conference was a good example of that. That's basically the feedback aversion, like the feedback part from a completely different perspective of what people don't think about or don't consider um, is how I would think about it at least. Um, and then having them think about or say that, well, who would understand this? Like, this is too difficult. This is more for educators. This should be a workshop for educators. Uh, whereas it shouldn't be. I, I think it tells on themselves mostly that they don't understand that uh, this can be understood you're telling on yourself by telling me that you don't under you don't understand what we just talked about. That's that's basically the gist of it. And I remember hearing like these constant comments about that. Oh well, they can't understand it, and this should be more for us than for them. Um, that's what was taking us like a moment to understand. Like, wait, you don't understand this? This this should be considered in the ESL classroom. Yeah, I think that's really what shut me down too was, you know, we were, we were doing both. We were um, trying to explain to the audience about these theories like critical race theory, racial linguistics, but also how can you put these theories into practice and create a syllabus and curriculum for your students? And so when we got comments like, you know, this is too tough for ESL learners. This is good for teacher training only. It made it seem as though what we're doing isn't good enough for the ESL classroom. And one of the things is that, yeah, we get it. Most of these instructors have been practitioners for 10, 20, 30 years. They've been in the field for so long that they definitely think they are doing something right since they've been doing this for so long. And so in a way, when you're bringing these new theories and um, practices, it's almost as if it's like a threat to their teaching styles, their ideologies. And so especially, you know, us as students, it is definitely a threat to um, to them because they believe they are doing something right for their students when all they're doing is really – just promoting standard English, you know, the colonized language. 
and you know we're coming we went we all went to Dominguez Cal State Dominguez Hills so really all we've ever learned was about social justice all we learned about was linguistic diversity and the importance of educating our students on this so because we're coming from a school where this is all that was taught we kind of came in anticipating that many of the instructors were going to know about these things, but really no, because the first day that we arrived at the conference, you know, one of the comments that was said is, you know, our job as ESL instructors is to guide our students towards obtaining standard English. And so that's when it really like hit us like, oh, wow. How are they going to respond to our curriculum that kind of debunks that ideology? Because we're not saying we're not going to teach standard English or that we're completely getting rid of it, discarding it. What we're saying is we're going to teach our students about the, the different social environments, different um, forms of communication, metalinguistic awareness, specifically how to change registers, because Ultimately, you know, there's a, there's obviously a difference between prescriptive and descriptive English, and that's really what we were, our goals of this um, uh, this talk and what we were really trying to share with the audience. But it's almost as if it just went in one ear out the other, you know, um, almost as like a threat to their own teaching, you know, as if what we're doing is really taking them away from what they've been doing for so long. I mean, but it is a threat, though, because um, it would almost, by definition, render them fairly irrelevant. And they could adapt, but to adapt would require humility and an admission, admission that they don't know everything. So... By proposing something bold and new, it's not even that new, but, um, you know, just showing a different way forward, then a lot of their authority is contained in the idea that they and only they know how to do things. And if there's another way, then why should someone listen to them? So there's a lot of people who... The, the the most pushback I've gotten online is from random white expats in various countries when I talk about whiteness and language teaching. And I find that there's a, lot, there's a lot of my book and stuff like that where I talk about the sort of EFL part, the travel thing, which I did, um, and how we're always hired without any real qualifications. Some of us happen to be good teachers, right? I turned into one, but it was not a requirement. And uh there's a lot of white people in different parts of the world who are just hanging out, you know, able to support themselves teaching English here or there. And, hey, again, some of them are great teachers. It's not like none of them should be doing it. But if you're someone who, when I say, um, you know, whiteness is a credential and it shouldn't be a credential by itself, right, which is to say, obviously, a white teacher can be credentialed. Right. Obviously, a white teacher can be qualified and skilled. It's just that there's plenty of white teachers out there who are credentialed by their whiteness and um, shouldn't be. And if you are a white teacher who feels insecure about that, and I, I would argue 
based on the conversations I've had and the, some of the interviews I'm going to do for my upcoming book. So I guess I'll hear more. There's probably more of them who are a little bit insecure about it because like if you get a job and you don't have any real qualifications for it, like you're not going to not know that you're not qualified, right? Like you know that you're just going through the motions, right? Like a lot of the, the people I knew in Korea, you know, they were hired and they didn't know what they were doing. And I didn't know what I was doing either at first. Um, and they would just, you know, they would complain that they were only repeating words that the teachers told them to say because they just wanted a white, te- white teacher there to, like, re- repeat words with a particular pronunciation, right? They weren't really developing things. Um and uh and if you're that person who's there for a year, probably doesn't bother you that much. But the people who make it their life, these people who've been doing this twenty, thirty years, right? And never actually go get more qualifications because again, a lot of them go and get qualifications. That's fine. Go ahead. You know, you do a lot of people first two years don't know what they're doing. And then if you go and get a master's, which you can do online, you know, or or whatever, I got no problem with that. But a lot of them just don't. And um here comes what I'm saying and what you're saying that's calling that into question. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's like the ground is shifting under their feet. But I don't think as many of them are aware of their own insecurity. Because they're insecure, but they're unaware of their insecurity, I would say. Like, it's one thing to be insecure, but be aware of it then you're probably not going to react the same way externally because you're insecure, but you're self-aware, so you're just going to shut up. There's things that I'm insecure about, that, but I'm aware. I'm not saying I'm aware of every insecurity I have. There's probably something that will come up someday, but like, oh, what happened here? Um, <laughs> but when I'm aware of my insecurities, you know, what people call them out, I'm like, Yep. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm not going to argue or I'm not going to say anything. So I think deep down that a lot of unqualified teachers are very well aware that they're not qualified. Right. Especially as they get older and they realize like a lot of the people I knew in Korea came back to the States or wherever they were from. And some of them got teaching jobs. You didn't, you can't automatically get one, but like you go and get the state certification. Some of them got teaching jobs. So that's fine. That makes sense that they got to, then when they got to be a teacher at home, they weren't brand new teachers. And that's probably for the best in that sense. Um, but a lot of them came home and just couldn't figure out what to do professionally. And uh, I'm saying that they, they know. That their work over there is not qualifying them for anything besides what they're already doing. Just why a lot of them stay forever. I was going to mention, like, I think it should be a cause for reflection, self-reflection. Um, I, I know that it shouldn't be an automatic expectation when something like this is kind of introduced to you. Um, especially with how we did it. But I do remember, uh, I just remember too, um, when we would talk about, uh, you know, white supremacist ideologies in these white, primarily white spaces, um, we would just say it how I'm saying it now. No, no other gestures. Um, 
But when we were getting the Q&A, they would mention exactly what we talked about, which is uh, these so-called white spaces that we're talking about. And they would use um, like air quotes uh, when they would talk about this. And in my head, I was just thinking, you know, what are you talking about? Are you are you saying white spaces because they're made up in your head? Like these quotation marks, what are they for? Um, why are you saying that? And because well, we're not this isn't a hypothetical situation. This is something that is extremely common in academia. Um, and it was just very interesting to see that uh, from multiple people in the crowd that when they wanted to say that they were being very um, hesitant to admit that this is what the reality is like, is that uh that, that that's just how it feels um, for us. But for them, it's like almost like a hypothetical. Uh, so that was something very interesting in regards to just uh, bringing up whiteness in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I always and, uh, have to go in a bit, but um, when I thought about what I was doing with this stuff, and I said this to you the other day, just in some fashion, I thought, like, should I just be really, should I really tiptoe around these ideas and try to sneak them in the back door? You know? Maybe that's one way that I could talk to people who are more centrist or whatever. I don't mean politically, but you know what I mean. Um, and they'll learn something without realizing they learned something. But, like, if you learn something without realizing you learned something, you're never going to do anything about it. <laughs> like, it has to be really direct. It's really hard to get people to learn stuff, even if they want to learn stuff. You all know how hard teaching is. And I don't I think that what people don't understand is which parts of teaching are hard. Right? And I don't just mean the, like, overwork and all that. That's not That's a lot of jobs. I just mean actually causing another person or group of people to improve at one or several skills is extremely challenging. And a lot of people don't understand how it's done, which frankly is not the same for everybody who's teaching and learning. Um, it's one of the things, one of the issues I have in my job, right? Is that, is that a lot of folks, I don't mean my colleagues, but like a lot of folks that we work with in professional development programs, you know, like a lot of learning is not sexy. <laughs> a lot of learning is like repetitive stuff because you're just not going to remember it unless you do it a bunch of times. And I don't mean in a rote memorization way. I just mean like you need to practice. Um, and what he wants to practice? What did Alan Iverson say? I was before your time. What we talk about practice. Um, so, you know, because people don't really understand what's, which parts of teaching are truly hard. Right. Which is not the same as stressful, which is, I think what people confuse is that like the parts of teaching that are stressful are to me, not the parts that are conceptually challenging. Right. Being overworked, underpaid and so forth, which I'm not anymore, but that sort of thing that is very stressful and exploitative. But the actual intellectual challenge is like, how do I, these people came to me at point A, how do I help them get to point B? Right. Um, and then what is point? What should and then what 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 is what is it mandated that point B be and what should point B be? 
all that stuff. So, and I think a lot of people don't understand what's hard about education because they had bad teachers. <laughs> and the teachers would just sort of lecture at them. Not that lectures have their place when you need to explain something complicated. Like sometimes you just have to say stuff for 30 minutes. <laughs> but like, um, people think education is a bunch of like TED talks. And even when I went to the TESOL International Conference in Seattle in 2017 to present, the most popular presentation was using TED Talks in the classroom. I'm like, you need to present on that? It's not hard. You play the video, you talk about it. <laughs> like, like, what was the presentation? <laughs> um, so, you know, I like, like the room was like overflowing. Like, you couldn't, couldn't get in the room. Um, and that was 2017. So anyway, folks, I'm glad you all were here. Hopefully found this conversation in addition to the other one, but you know, the one that's relevant here tonight to be useful to you. I hope that again, you use it for fuel to just sort of keep going because they drum too many of us out of the field. And in a way they kind of drum me out in the sense that I'm not actually teaching English these days, but I'm still tendentially involved in language and you know, I still I said maybe arrogantly when I graduated my master's, like, I think I need to save this field from itself. Um, and I don't know. I feel like I'm doing what I can, and it's good to see that there's people out there and, you know, that the work I'm doing has reached you. Um, and then now I'm talking to you myself. So. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> this is a good talk. Yeah, very inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, and uh, I'll be back in two weeks as ever. Um, and I hope that everyone enjoyed the conversation. And considering when this is coming out, I hope everyone's holidays are starting on a good note because this is coming out in December. So, uh, all right, folks. Mm-hmm.